you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus and life together making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. We are taking a break from the Gospel of John this week, and we're going to work through the one another's of Scripture. And when I say the one another's, I'm talking about the commands to Christians throughout the Bible to treat each other in certain ways or to do certain things toward each other. So um, we're going to be working through that. We're going to have a couple of weeks of that, and I'll kind of intersperse those as we take breaks from John throughout the year. Um, so First John, like all of John's writings, lays out a stark divide between the world and Christians. The world is full of darkness and false teaching and disdain for Jesus, but Christians are to celebrate light and truth and joy in Christ. So we see that God, um, in, in 1 John, we see there's a lot of different themes in here, but we see that immediate context of where we're going to be in 1 John 4, we see that God has put the spirit of truth in us in 1 John 4, 6, and which is always connected to love. So then love is a hallmark of Christian living and the subject of our text today. So um, just also by way of a little bit of introduction, um, when... When I'm preparing for a sermon, in general, there's a couple of ways that it goes. There's a couple of kind of tracks that it takes, depending on the text. There's a lot of times where I'll understand the text with some effort and, and wrestle with application and try to figure out how best to, um, to apply it and how to teach it the best way. But it's reinforcing what I already know to be true. This is normal for me, and it's, it's, it's a joy to preach these messages because it, I can do that with confidence and with conviction. Then there's other times um, I'll have a difficult time understanding the text, but it'll make sense by the time I preach it, and, and I'll be able to kind of okay wrap my head around it. It's a, it's a wrestle, and those make the learning process that much sweeter because I've grown stronger as a result, and the view is always worth the climb, as it were. Then there's sermons like this one, which are convicting, and they're uncomfortable, and they show my weaknesses like I'm looking in a mirror. So today, I, I hope... Um, that that's where I'm at this morning. I feel like I'm recovering from surgery, and I'm not quite sure how it went yet. So I, I will say this. My confidence in Christ is unwavering, but I'm hoping that through these next few minutes that you'll see that our God, our God loves his people much better than I ever could or the elders could, and um, or that we could even hope to, and that I'm humbled and grateful to be able to wrestle through things like this with a wonderful church family like you all. So that's just kind of laying it out there for you this morning. I'm... I'm still wrestling through a lot of these things, and I hope you'll be along for the ride with me. So let's pray. Let's dive in and see what the Lord has for us in 1 John 4. Father, we praise you. We praise you for your word, that, it, that you, you teach us, you, you cut us open with it, that it's a sharp two-edged sword that testifies to truth and to your grace. So, Lord, I pray that your word would be sufficient this morning, that it would shine brightly, that it would reveal truth, that it would be beautiful, that we would receive it well. And I pray that we would wrestle well with it. But, Lord, I pray that it's for your glory, that we wrestle through your text, that we, as your people, wrestle with your truth. And I pray that we would come out all the more better on the back end of it. I pray that you would do your work in us by the power of the Spirit, by the power of your word. I pray that you would do your work during these next few minutes. And I pray 
that you would let our hearts be open to what you would have to say, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. And I pray that you would give me the words that you would have me preach. It's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. So 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 7 through 12. Let me get there right quick. First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. I'm going to read the whole thing, have a couple more comments, and then we're going to just work through it bit by bit. So it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God, or who, who does not love, does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was, manifest, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his, perfect, and his love is perfected in us. So before we start working through this text, before we start digging into it, which we will, let's take a step back and think about it for just a minute here. The goal, the main point here is that we as Christians would love one another. That's where we're headed. And it might make sense then to spend our time starting at that place and then working out how that, how that, you know, the nuances, um, figuring out what it looks like, how do we love each other, what specific ways we need to grow in, very practical things like that. But that's not what John does here. He goes back the other way. He starts with his end goal and he works back upstream to his theology. And that's what we're going to do. Today, we're going to follow John's flow of thought and just kind of see where he goes. So as we explore the why of loving each other, the rest of the details, the how, will hopefully, hopefully fall into place as we move through our time this morning. So the outline, if you're taking notes or if you want to just kind of jot these down, the outline today is the, the whole topic is love one another. But the first point in verses 7 and 8 is that God is the source of love. The second point in verses 9 and 10 is that God is the, or Jesus is the expression of love. The third point is that Christians are the result of love. That's verses 11 through 12. So that's where we're going to be going. That God is the source of love. Jesus is the expression of love. And Christians are the result of love. So let's take a look at God as being the source of love in verses 7 and 8. I'll read verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So, John leads off with beloved, which continues this affectionate tone that he has throughout 1 John. He, has, he, he regularly says beloved or little children. He has these affectionate terms for the people that he's writing for. So he's, what, this, and, and this is an imperative that he's talking about. It's a very gentle imperative, but it's a command that he's giving. Beloved, let us want, love one another. It's a gentle construction in the Greek. It's, Greek. it's not harsh or authoritative, but it's let us rather than y'all need to. He's saying, let's do this together. And that's the tone that we want to have, that I want to have for us this morning. He's already doing what, is, what he is asking his readers to do. He's on their team, but he's saying, let's do this. This is an aspirational thing. Let's do this together. And then we see in the second half of verse 7 that love is from God. So this is the reason that we, that we have for loving one another. For love is from God. We're going to come back to this again and talk about this a lot more in verse 9. But the idea here is the fundamental, that love is fundamental to God's character. So as his children, as children of God, 
we should, have, we should bear that family resemblance. We should look like God acts. And then we see in the last bit of verse 7 that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So we see that love is indicative of faith. That it's a consequence of faith, not the way that you earn it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, not you love and then you get the Spirit. It's not the other way around, right? It's that we, we are loved by God and then he blesses us and produces love in us. So there's a unique love of Christians that we're talking about here. It's because of the Lord. It's not because we're awesome and because we're these cool people that God just couldn't do without. It's that we were corpses at the bottom of the sea and that he saved us and welled up in us this, and gave us this capacity to love each other in a special and unique way. And it's loving people it's because he's the source of love. And it's not loving in whatever way we want. It's not loving in whatever way we see fit or whatever way the culture defines love. It's loving the way that God defines love. And we're going to come back to that in a few more minutes as well. But for now, we see here that God defines love through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, that for the church, for the gathered saints, not just for wedding ceremonies, but for the gathered saints together in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient, it's kind, it's not arrogant or rude or irritable or bitter. It rejoices in the truth. That's the kind of love we're going to be talking about today. And we see in verse 8, that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We see that a lack of love indicates a lack of faith. And we can see that unbelievers can be kind. You know, if, you, if you know some non-Christians, they can be kind, they can be nice people, they can love others to an extent, but they can't imitate what only the Holy Spirit can do. It's like when Moses is performing signs of power before Pharaoh and his magicians replicate a couple of the signs and wonders and and plagues that are going on, but they can't hang with the power of God because they don't have the power of God. Another way to illustrate it is um, my son loves fire trucks. He loves all trucks, but he loves fire trucks specifically. And we had one visit a few houses down last week. It really, it made his day. It was like, man, these people are really in a rough shape, but my son was like freaking out, but I loved it. So I did some research on this, and I, just from loving my son and wanting to be excited about what he's excited about, I learned that fire engines can carry about 500 to 1,000 gallons of water, depending on the engine. So they can fight a small fire for a couple of minutes, a very limited capacity and pressure, but they, can, they carry enough with them to get a few things done if they need to, just at, a, on a, uh, at the drop of a hat. This is how they would handle things like a backyard dumpster fire that we had last week on my street, like the big dumpster in the backyard. Dumpster fire happened. Fire truck came on, put it out, no problem. Just a couple of minutes, not a big deal. Well, it wasn't a big deal for me. We had a great time watching it. But, but if they have a big fire going on, if the, if the fire engines um, have a, if the firefighters have a big fire going on, like an apartment building or a house, you know, a huge deal that's going on, they'll tap into the water main through a fire hydrant, which means they have an essentially unlimited supply of water at a much higher pressure than they can generate just on the truck. This is how they would handle a bigger dumpster fire, like. Well, like all of 2020 was. That, would, like that kind of a dumpster fire is what we would need to tap into the fire hydrant. Um, but it's the same thing with unbelieving marriages and Christian marriages, right? Apart from the Lord, you have a very limited supply of being able to serve each other or ask forgiveness or offer apologies or maintain commitments and faithfulness to each other. There's a very limited capacity for that. You can have a decent marriage apart from the Lord. 
but you cannot have a godly, truly life-giving marriage apart from knowing him the way that he has intended marriage to be. But if you follow Christ, you've tapped into an unlimited supply of grace at a much higher pressure, and it will transform your life as well as your marriage. That's the difference that we're talking about here. So verse 8 may seem harsh, that what just because somebody is harsh or unkind or angry that they're not a Christian, maybe. But consider this. It, it may seem harsh to say that. But consider the transformative power of God's love. No one in Scripture has an encounter with the Lord and remains unchanged. When you have an authentic encounter with the Lord and he saves you and puts his spirit in you, you are transformed. You are a new creation. But now then consider trying to bear the fruit of the spirit without his guidance. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. If you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, living in you, You're trying to make bricks without straw. And you're ultimately serving a cruel taskmaster rather than Jesus, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. If you don't have the security of relationship with the God who is love, you are searching for redemption by a different name. You're looking for meaning or significance. You're looking for peace or joy or satisfaction, but you're trying to pump water out of a dry well. There's no grace, no love when you are relying on on yourself and you cannot love because you do not know the God who is love you also you can't redefine what love is our culture is really trying hard to do that trying really hard to redefine what's going on here you can't redefine it whether it's tolerance or just unbridled lust or self-indulgence or unqualified affirmation it doesn't matter What label you slap on it, it matters what it is. It matters what God says it is. Some college of friends of mine uh, learned this lesson kind of the hard way. They were in a prank war uh, with a house of girls that I would not have messed with. Um, These girls, um, through a very serious series of unfortunate events, got into these guys' pantry and removed all the paper labels off their canned goods. And they also added in a few random cans of their own that they'd stop by the store to grab. So whenever these guys were feeling a little bit confident or hungry, they'd do a little pantry roulette. And you might think, I'll have some green beans with dinner, but you might end up with some SpaghettiOs as your side dish. Or maybe you go to the pantry hoping for peaches or pears, and you end up with sauerkraut. That happened. Or, my personal favorite, maybe you've made a tuna sandwich, and it turns out that the tuna that you made it with was actually cat food. That's a true story. That is 100% a true story. They, paid pantry, they, they played pantry roulette for um, a good long while, uh, and they got so fed up with it that they actually were like, well, we just need to go donate all these canned goods to like, the, you know, the, the, the soup kitchens or whatever. And then they were like, well, we can't like, give them cat food. <laughs> we, we, can't, we don't know what we're giving them, so we can't. They, they just kept um, just guessing until it finally ran out. But the point is, it doesn't matter what the label is on the outside or what you think it should be. It matters what is on the inside, very much so, especially when it's cat food. But the point is you can't redefine love by slapping a new label on it, like tolerance. You can't wish it into being something else. Love is what the Lord says it is. And here we see that love is a mark of genuine believers because, as we see in verse 8, God is love. This is referring to God's um, actions, not just some abstract idea, not just some ephemeral quality about him. 
This is how we experience God, that what God does is loving. And here John is saying that God is loving in his nature. He is continually giving of himself and seeking our benefit. That he sustains his creation and upholds it by the word of his power. But it goes deeper than that. God loved himself eternally among the Trinity before he ever spoke creation into existence. And then he expressed that out. And we see that there's a great quote by the theologian J.I. Packer. He says, The love which he shows to men and which Christians know and rejoice in is a revelation of God's own inner being. So this eternal self-love that God has that is expressed toward us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which we will see in the next couple of verses. But brothers and sisters, fellow sinners, this is amazing news. That... The truth of God is love is the basis of our salvation, that he is loving toward us. That is how we can have confidence, that he is loving in his nature, that he's chosen to love sinners and save us through Christ. That is good news. Some of you may be wondering if this is true. Is God love? Is that, is that right? You may have heard questions like these or even asked them yourself. How can we say that God is love when so many horrific things are happening all over the world? How can we say that God is love when he sends people to hell? How can we say that God is love when Christians are such a mess? There's three common mistakes in these questions. The first one is that notice is that God is not notice that God is not only love. He has many other attributes like justice and holiness, and these are not in tension. They're not competing with each other, but rather they're complementary. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly loving. And he is loving in his justice. And he is just in his love. They're not intention. So God is not only love. The second one is that our culture, and increasingly some Christians, often flip this around far too often and preach that love is God. They believe that anything short of affirmation and celebration of everything, including sin, is ungodly. But brothers and sisters, love is not God. It does not dictate God's principles, and it doesn't hold sway over everything else that he does. It is, in fact, the other way around. God's character and actions determine what love truly is. The third point here is that many people who, when you say that, how is God loving when Christians are such a mess? And I would say, guilty as charged. Many people who call themselves Christians are not behaving in a godly manner, though. For one, especially here in the United States, just because they're wearing the jersey doesn't mean they're on the team. Just because somebody goes to church or says that they read their Bible or says that they pray or says that they're a Christian or wears a cross or does anything that a lot of other earnest and sincere Christians would do doesn't mean that they have faith. It means that they've attached onto something that they see as beneficial. But we see in the parable of the sower, that different types of soil, we see that there are some that will abandon the faith very easily and very quickly. So the point here is that we will know them by their fruit. And some who claim to follow Jesus don't actually believe in him and don't actually bear fruit. But the other answer to this is that Christians are still sinners. Just because we believe in Jesus doesn't mean that we're automatically perfect. We still need grace and the gospel just as much as we ever did. Now, we should still be growing in the faith and we should still be hopeful in how we respond to our sin with godly grief and repentance. We should, that should be a hallmark of who Christians are. But we're still a work in progress, myself included, very much included. So when thinking about love, we must 
begin with God's character and actions. We can't work, we can't start with our actions and evaluate God in light of what we think. We can't work backwards up that, that train of thought. That's going to lead us to heresy because it'll undercut the authority and the sufficiency and the inspiration of Scripture. And then eventually, ultimately, what we're really doing is we're buying into that original lie in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that he was love? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. So how does God love? Show, how does God show us his love and his character? Let's take a look at verse 9. Now that we've seen that God is the source of love, let's see that Jesus is the expression of love in verses 9 and 10. I'll read verse 9 for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. So we see that God's love is evident in him sending Christ. We see that, he was, that it was made manifest, that his love was made manifest. That the, the, um, the, the Greek word there is phenerao, which this means that God was revealing something that was previously hidden. He was uncovering it. This means that God's love, which has been there all along and hinted at through the Old Testament, was finally fully revealed in Christ. We also see that God sent Jesus to accomplish his purposes, to bring us into his kingdom, just like Jesus sends us to do ministry in his name in the Great Commission, to accomplish his purposes, to spread the gospel, and to make disciples. God sent Jesus for his purposes to save his people. And this is not some abstract idea or principle. It's not theoretical. The incarnation... The life, the ministry, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ is a real, true, living, breathing, dying, resurrecting example of Jesus of God's love for us. It is not divine child abuse. It's not a fairy tale adapted from pagan superstitions. It's not a synthesis of the greatest hopes and archetypes that we've dreamed up. It's not an oppressive narrative fabricated to perpetuate the, the patriarchy. It is truth. It is reality. And it is evidence which demonstrates the validity validity of our faith in a loving God who has created everything whom we sinned against and who responded to our rebellion by sending a Savior to redeem us and give us the hope of eternal life. That is what God has done. And then the last clause of verse 9 says that God sent Christ so that we might live through him. We see that God's love saves us. Earlier in, the chap- in chapter 4, in verse 1, it says that false teachers go out into the world and deceive. But then here now we see in verse 9 that Christ was sent into the world, the same phrase, so that we might live. So he redeems us. He gives us new life that we can live. And that is love, brothers and sisters. He gives us new life. And verse 10 tells us that God's love is the gold standard of love, not ours. So verse 10, we see, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's easy for us to love the God who redeemed us. It's easy for us to do that. It is not easy for Jesus to suffer for our sins. It is not easy for him to turn the wrath of the Father into joy. That's what that term propitiation means. We see 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who, he, he, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God. It's not easy becoming a curse so that we can be forgiven and redeemed. 
You and I, brothers and sisters, we merely receive it and revel in it. God does the work. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 2, the same theme. You were dead in your sin, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were still dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Our love is fickle and fair weather, but God's love is constant and radiant and utterly faithful. His actions toward us define true love. And by comparison, we are a dusty reflection in a cracked mirror. It's it's tempting for us to evaluate God's actions in light of what we would do. We are arrogant. We're faithless in a lot of ways. We like to think, man, I wish if I were God, I would do X, Y, or Z. And we ask, what is he doing up there? Doesn't he understand what I'm going through? Doesn't he understand my life? Or we say that, Maybe we go the other way and we say, oh, God understands. That's why he's okay with me doing X, Y, or Z sin. He's, he, he understands me. He's gonna be, he, he would give me a pass if he knew who I was really, what I was really going through. Or better yet, if God knew what I know, he would do what I think is best. But I hope you see the folly in that. That each one of these things are heretical, blasphemous, and foolish, and short-sighted. You may be tempted to evaluate God's love by the way that you would handle things. Like you might be saying, I don't think it's loving to rebuke someone and make them feel bad. God wouldn't do that. But the only problem with this is the Bible. You can't project what you want God to be like back onto the Bible and still have an accurate understanding of who he is. It's just just not how it works. The Bible is God revealing himself to us. So we, tr- we read it and we listen to him. We understand who he's telling us that he is. We learn how he expresses love and then we pattern our lives and love after him, not the other way around. So brothers and sisters, God's love toward us is the gold standard. There is none better. You cannot find a more perfect, pure, beautiful, sacrificial, effective love than what we see in the gospel. And we'll echo John 15, 13, which we'll get to in a few months. The greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. You see that the Lord has loved us in the person and the work and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And that love is eternal. It is unchangeable. Because of that acceptance, because our sins are atoned for, because we have been bought with the price of Christ's blood, because we have been loved first, We can change and live our lives in light of him. We can trust him in dark times, and we can trust him in good times. We see that Christ died and raised again so that we can live in the newness of life. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the full expression of God's love? Maybe maybe a Maybe a harder way to ask that question, maybe a better but harder way to ask that question is, are you willing to live like you believe it? Are you willing to live like you believe that Jesus is the full expression of God's love? So in in light of this incredible love expressed in Christ, how should we respond? What do we live like? Let's take a look at verses 11 and 12, that Christians are the result of love. So verse 11 says, 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, we see beloved, that John is modeling for his readers what he's calling them to. He starts off this section by saying the same thing as he does back up in verse 7. He loves his readers. He loves his audience. He regularly calls them beloved and little children. And then he says, if God loved us, we ought to love one another. We see, again, that the Lord is the ultimate source of our love for each other. It's not, just enough, it's not enough to just talk about the love of God. We must love one another as a result. His love must motivate us toward godliness and toward love for each other. It must have an effect among us. We must love each other in the way that God loves us. And that's what I was saying earlier. I'll get back to that in just a second. If you want to love one another, hear me on this, Christians. If you want to love one another, proclaim the gospel to each other. Remind each other of the gospel in good times and in bad. Remind each other of truth. Speak it in love. Be firm but gentle and confident in it but humble in it. But remind each other of the truth of the gospel. Encourage each other with hope. Whether it's in rebuking a brother or sister in sin or whether it's weeping with those who are weeping, we should be hopeful in the way that we express love and living with our brothers and sisters. And if you want to become a more loving, more gracious, more mature in your faith, and get to know the Lord. Get to know the source of love. You'll find that his kindness leads to repentance. You'll find that his truth anchors you in your fears and doubts and frees your mind to worship him and love others. You'll find that other Christians who are sinners and have their own issues are a wonderful source of hope and encouragement for you. You'll find that we're all in this together and that God has given us gifts that complement each other and he's growing us together in unity. We see in verse 12 that no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This idea that no one has ever seen God. The, the intent there is not that we've never seen God, that, that nobody's ever seen anything, but that no one has seen him in a complete way because he is spirit. Well, we see that Moses, obviously we see throughout scripture, we see Moses spoke with the Lord face to face, but he wasn't allowed to see his full glory. There's tons of other examples I could get into. That kind of raises the question, if no one has ever seen God, then what does he look like? Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, like a thumbprint or like striking a coin. God looks like the church loving each other, sinners living joyfully and peaceably and harmoniously, loving each other, for his glory with servants' hearts. That is what God looks like. That's what his movement, that's what his love expressed looks like. And Jesus tells his disciples in John 13, 34 and 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus, that we have encountered him, that we have a saving faith in him, is that if we love one another. You see also in verse 12 here that God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And that since God loves us, we ought to love one another. Loving one another is the evidence that God lives in us and loves us. And the goal of this passage is that God's love would be evident and perfected in the way that we love one another. That, that's, so that his love would be seen in how we relate to each other. 
This isn't saying that God's love isn't perfect. It is. But the Greek word here, um, tetelaomene, there we go, butcher it, which means to complete. It's the same root word that Jesus says on the cross when he says tetelestai, which means it is finished or paid in full. It means that something's been brought to its completed goal, brought to its intended goal. So God's love is intended to be expressed amidst his people as we love one another. So that raises the question here, how do we perfect this love? How do we love as God loved us? Well, let's start with how he loved us. Let's, let's kind of work through this. It says that he loved us first, before we made any moves. He's, he's the one who initiated. He moved first. And that he also loved those who hated him. He also loves those who are different than him. His love accomplished the best thing for us, even though it wasn't what we wanted at the time. We wanted to just be left alone in our sin and in our death. But he gave us what we needed and what, what, rather than what we wanted. His love continued when it wasn't easy or convenient. His love perseveres even though we sin against and offend him. He loved at an extreme cost. His love had a concrete expression, not just words and feelings, but actions. And his love rejoices in and proclaims the truth. So how do we mirror that? How do we mirror all those qualities that I just rattled off quickly? We ought to mirror God's love in the way that we live. By loving first. We live with a default toward love. Not a default of anger or pride or selfishness or depression. Not worry or fear. Our default is love because our God is love. We also, not just by loving first, we also extend love toward those who hate us. This is kind of an odd thing to say, and this is a really contentious time in our history to say this. We don't have to get caught up in the world or its craziness, but we do need to follow God's commands to bless those who curse us and to love our enemies. And remember that at one time or another, we were all enemies of God, and yet he saw fit to save us and bring us into his family. So when we love our enemies, when we pray for them, that means that we are doing what God has done for us. And that we have the freedom to love, even those who want to do us harm. We have the freedom to love, even those who hate us. There's a, a story, um, I've, I've told some of you guys this, I don't, I don't think I've ever said it on a Sunday morning, but um, when I, was, I was in uh, Niger a few years ago, jeez, more than a decade ago, Ugh, I'm getting old. Um, sorry, I had an existential crisis there for a second. Um, but, so I was, in, I was in Niger, and we went to this mega church there. And uh, it, was, it was like 120 people. That was the mega church in the city. And uh, there's a guy that came. So the, there's a bunch of different tribes of people, a bunch of different languages being spoken. I think at one point there was like 10 or 12 different languages being spoken in the church. So we were sitting in the, in the gringo, in the, in the English section uh, with all the other like kind of lame people. And there's all these other people like elaborately dressed and beautiful music and all these really, really cool accents and things like that. We were like the non-coolest people in the room. But... Um, there's this really fierce-looking guy that came in. Uh, and he was a part of the Tuareg tribe, which is a really, uh, from what I understand, I don't, I don't know this firsthand, but from what I understand, they're fairly violent and fairly aggressive people. 
And this man was very severe. He had a very severe look on his face, and he was carrying a Quran. And he walked into a church, into a church service, and sat down a few rows back and just listened. And then uh, the, the pastor that was preaching out of John, out of the Gospel of John, um, he preached a couple of sermons, but that one of the sermons was out of John. And this guy's face just fell in the middle of the service. Just fell. And he started just weeping. And, and, and it was kind of one of those things like a few people started to kind of notice it. And, and then we kind of, like through this broken translation, there was the, guy, the, the lead pastor was preaching, and there was a French translation that was then translated from French into English in our section of the, of the, the service. So this broken translation comes out. This guy comes forward at the altar call time, kind of sort of an altar call time, comes forward and says he wants to follow Jesus, kind of this wild, wild circumstance. And through this broken translation, we hear that this Tuareg guy had come to church to find a guy that he was going to murder. He was going to find the guy and track him down and kill him after church. But he heard the gospel and became a Christian right then and there. And he had been studying. He was a younger man. He was probably in his mid-20s, mid to, mid to late-20s or so. And he had been studying to be an imam. So he had been studying to be a Muslim pastor. He would studied the Quran all of his life. Knew it very well. And the, the wildest thing was the transformation in this guy's countenance and how he looked. He came in severe. He, came, he went out with tears streaming down his face, smiling and joyful. And he left his Quran laying on the, on the, 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 the pew there. Um, and he took a Bible with him. But that is, that's the kind of wild love that God has for his people. And, that's the, and, and the, the, the coolest thing, the, the neatest thing, was that uh, the, the pastor, Yakuba, and I, I mean, I, I saw this like, Straight, like, just, like, hanging out. We were just kind of all looking around, like, what's going on here? And this is, everybody else was like, this is totally normal. This happens every Sunday. Totally cool. Um, <laughs> nobody else was really freaking out. It was what we were. Um, but one of the crazy things is the pastor said, hey, this man has just turned his back on his faith, and he's now our brother. So whatever debts you have with him, whatever anger you have against him, whatever, whatever, and there were several people sitting in our section that said, yeah, this guy beat up my cousin, or yeah, he like let the air out of my tires and killed one of my goats, or like, he, he had, this is a bad dude. And yet, the pastor was saying, this is now our brother. He's been forgiven in the same way that we have. So we don't have any, there's no, there's no enmity between us now. That he's going to have the world against him. His whole world, his whole family is going to disown him. His whole um, mosque and all the people that he was, all his social circles are now going to abandon him. So we're now his family. So if he has needs, if he, has, he, needs, if he needs a place to stay, offer your, your couch, offer your courtyard. If he needs food, then go get it for him and help him with it. Now, and that's the wildest, coolest application I've ever seen of the church immediately coming around. And so this guy, the, the, the guy that's sitting in our section, was the guy that he was going to go kill, went up to him and gave him a hug and said, you're not going to kill me, right? <laughs> and, then, and it was totally cool. I mean, they, they hugged. and It was, it was a kind of a neat deal. Anyway. Um, but that's what it looks like for God to love us. That, that we who would, would kill our Savior, we who would put him on a cross and bleed him out, whip him, spit on him, humiliate him, that he would save us. And that's the kind of love that we should have for, this, for, for enemies. I mean, you know, like don't necessarily go sign up to get killed. I'm not saying that. Be wise about it, but but we should be able to embrace those who claim the name of Christ and see the power of God at work and rejoice in it. We should love those who hate us. We should have that freedom. 
This also means, this embracing the love of God means that we also love those who are different than us. Those who look different, who talk different, who vote different, who behave differently. Because God's family is beautiful in its diversity. Let's strive for unity and grace and love among the body. That doesn't mean that we accept heresy or wickedness or sin. It doesn't mean we're not celebrating those things. Not at all. But it does mean that we embrace the variety of gifts that God has given us and we charitably sharpen each other in light of the gospel. That's what that means. So mirroring God's love means that we persevere when things are not easy or convenient. It means that we move toward each other in love, especially when there's sin going on. So brothers and sisters, as we come to the end of our time, I hope you've seen that we ought to love one another with the understanding that God is the source of love. That Jesus is the expression of his love for his people. And that Christians are the result of his love. And that we're to display that love throughout the world as we make disciples. Because that's what God has sent us to do. That's what his love compels us and equips us and commissions us to do. And I hope you'll join me in praying to that end.